This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Sam from Open Doors. How are you, Sam? Very well, and it's a real joy to be here. So thank you so much. I feel uh, very uh, cherished already. (laughs) (laughs) Bless you, sir. You come not from the south, you come from the north. Yeah, well, I'm from Birmingham. I was born in Derby, technically. lived there for 18 months, but I've lived in Birmingham all the rest of my life in various parts of Birmingham. So Uh very much uh, a man of the Midlands. Uh And above anything north of London, we consider to be the north. I'm afraid (laughs) we're just simply ignorant of (laughs) the rest of the country. Surprisingly, though, I've lived in Birmingham so long, people don't always pick up too strong a, a Brummy accent, but uh, we'll kind of leave that to your listeners to decide. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now, Sam, you work for an organisation which has the respect of the church for very good reasons, mm. because Open Doors works with actually persecuted Christians in other countries. Yeah. Now, we're living in a time, of course, when people are talking, <laughs> thinking in terms of their own persecution and persecution complexes, and we're wondering, oh my goodness, which way is the world going? And it's all coming, we're going to be in trouble. But you are living working with people who actually are going through actual persecution. Uh, can you tell me anything about Open Doors, which, is in the, which can be in the public domain, which will uh, help people to understand what it is you do? Yeah, so, I mean, it's lovely to hear the respect that um, Open Doors has and, and you appreciate Open Doors for. I think with many of these uh, things that it's the origin story that is really important to hold on to. And really the origin story of Open Doors was a man really saying, Father, here is my life, use me as you want to. And then the call coming upon him to lay down his life in obedience to Christ's call, to essentially wake up and strengthen what remains of the church. That's a verse from Revelation 3.2. And it it really catalyzed this young man, uh, Andrew Vanderbilt, uh, who's a Dutch guy, to lay down his life to strengthen the church, particularly in the Eastern Bloc initially under communist rule. But then from those initial kind of seedlings of obedience and faithfulness has has grown this kind of tree branching out in various places, strengthening Christians to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, keep their, their roots firm and established in him and to live faithfully in their context, no matter how, you know, opposition or obtuse um, it is uh, to their faith in Jesus. So it's really that initial journey of obedience, say, Lord, here am I, send me, you know, uh, and taking that step of faith. Mm. And his first steps were going into Poland, smuggling Bibles into Poland, then into the Eastern Bloc, really meeting Christians who didn't have freedom to practice their faith in Jesus, but desperately, you know, wanted to be faithful to Jesus. And Brother Andrew just felt himself being called and sent to meet with those Christians, to be present with them, to pray with them, to bring resources to strengthen them. And from those kind of initial stumblings and, and beginnings, really has grown a, a global ministry of the kingdom that is about strengthening the church in the midst of persecution. The contemporary church, representing about one-seventh of the global church, are living in contexts of persecution. That's about 360 million Christians. Now, really? the stats can be unhelpful sometimes because they feel so big. We're like, well, what do we do with that? But mm. I think the stat of one in seven Christians in the world living in contexts of persecution is really, really helpful in normalizing the reality because when you think about maybe your small group that you're in or a prayer group that you're in your church, if you think, okay, one-seventh of those may be coming to church this week with a story of having lost their job because of their faith Mm. or somebody has been abducted because of their faith or they've Mm. been taken to prison because they were were found to be reading a Bible, um, that's the reality that so many Christians around the world live in. It's 
so mm. hard to get your head round with the mm. relative freedoms we live in. And uh, really the ministry of, of Open Doors today is the same as when it began. It's firstly to be obedient to the call of God. And, and secondly, it's to, to strengthen the church, to be the church um, in all of the places where it's most challenging. Gosh, wow. One in seven. Yeah. Extraordinary business. Wow. Yeah. And that's people who are actually in persecution at a time when, of course, in the West, we're thinking, oh, dear, it's all going wrong because of because of just the narrative of the culture is turning. And we're thinking uh, people are talking in terms of being persecuted. Mm. But actual, yes, as you say, abduction yeah. and trouble for reading, fired for reading yeah. a Bible and so on. It is significant and uh, and and un <laughs> frequently unremembered that that's still happening. Yeah. Some settings, I find myself in talking to to Christians or, or leaders, and that the concept of there being persecution for you, for your faith is almost like an, un, an unknown thought, uh, and even the concept of persecution being such a present part of the story of the early church has not been something that's been connected with and i think part of our our role part of my passion personally is to almost to help us to understand the world we live in mm. by re-engaging with the, the world of the early church mm. you know, where jesus said if they persecute me they'll persecute you he was almost describing a normative of the christian faith which mm. is that actually the gospel is in some way it's antagonistic to the status quo of the world therefore if we are following jesus's ways rather than the ways of, of the world we're going to find there's a tension there and and jesus describes that tension as you know being the root of persecution which is direct opposition for your faith so i think if we understand that new testament narrative and uh, all of the stories so many of the letters are written either by paul in a context of persecution yeah. or written to christians in persecution and peter he writes in his letter in, in chapter four about you know, do not be surprised when you face trials and tribulations of all kinds he's he's letting them know the normal christian life is facing challenges and opposition but he's strengthening them and encouraging them to hold on to jesus in the midst yeah. of that and i oh, think that's wonderful that's what we're trying to do yeah that's well that's glorious that's beautiful yeah holding on to jesus in the middle of it all fascinatingly because my work a lot of the time is in is in church history and i'm looking at the great heroes of church history it's fascinating mm -hmm. to see the great ones <laughs> were shot at in yeah. their own time yeah and that they take solace mm -hmm. from those realities yeah, yeah. Uh, i remember um reading hebrews 11 when i was a, a a younger man i think in my teenage years my my first ever email account um was a hotmail account and it was um too good for this world at hotmail.com which sounds very very pretentious and self-aggrandizing but there's a line in hebrews 11 which talks about those who well summarizes the whole of the chapter and talks at the end about those who were persecuted for their faith some of them were you know fed to lions you know were were sawn in two and it says they were too good for this world. Mm. There was something in their identity, their DNA, which was of an eternal order, mm. that they were too good for this world. And mm -hmm. for me at that age, I was like, you know, God, I want to live in a way that's too good for this world. Not in a, I need profile in this world, but I, I want to live according to a different order, a different reality. I, I want to live within the kingdom that is eternal. You know, I want that to be my identity, yeah. not living according to the, you know, the passing you know themes that are in this world and i think 
those who are in the midst of persecution, uh, they're, they're often, because of the restriction and persecution, they're living in a way that's too good for this world. Mm. And so I often look to them and think, you know, I want to in some way be inspired in my faith, by your faith, by the way that you're living, because you're mm. living not according to, not succumbing uh, to the status quo, but you, you're living according to a, a different identity. And, and I think actually in the West, wow. we, we need that agitation, that inspiration. It's not that this is a perfect form of Christianity, you know, mm, wherever mm. They, there are people, yes. we all have our different struggles and challenges, but there's something precious and beautiful and dynamic about that obedience that, that costs everything. Mm. Now you, you were talking with you previously. I'm, I'm so grateful for this perspective. It's so rare. It's so awesome. And we tend to find it. We, we, we believers presently will, uh, we always have to be reminded of the gospel. We always yeah. have to be reminded. Paul says, let Absolutely. me remind you of the gospel. Yeah. And it is fascinating when you see, we've, we had someone on the edge of our church plant recently who went, um, he was, he, it's, we, we thought, is he made a profession? He has, he has he not. And then in the end he says, if you just believe in God, that doesn't actually change you. Mm. He said, and we realized we know we've made it so clear to you throughout. Mm. It's not just believing in God. Mm. It's believing in a savior who came yeah. to us. That is, you realize you, you needed help. Yeah. And he, you realize that what the, the, the battle in his case was forgetting the actual gospel. And as you're describing, when there is a actual persecution, the actual gospel sings. Yeah. And talking with you previously, you talked in terms of how, although these people, what you, what you, you talked to us about the sense of victimhood among the, the persecuted you've met. Mm. Will you talk to us a little about that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it, it's really interesting con- comparing the contemporary church context of persecution and looking back at, at the context of the New Testament and the early church because mm. it's it's very very easy to have a, a one size fits all perspective on persecution. Yeah, but even in the in the Book of Acts, you see different degrees of persecution from you know, Peter and, and John being warned not to share Jesus publicly. Then because they do, they're beaten. Then you've got Stephen who's, you know, martyred. You've got then stories throughout the, the Gospels of some people because of healings and the loss of trade persecute Christians because of the impact of, of that. And, and so it's really interesting reading that story. So in terms of looking at the type of suffering of the persecuted church around the world today, you can have anything from somebody in Central America who where you'd think the church is strong and it is you know there's a majority of you know christian faith um, both catholic and pentecostal in central america but where the church is persecuted there is because where the church is challenging people to let go of the world to let go of vices and all of that and to follow jesus that has significant costs to things like the drug trade in central america if somebody comes to faith become set free from drug addiction that has a financial cost to the drug trade a bit like you know the silversmith in in acts there's a very um actual economic impact so the church can be persecuted and you can have church pastors that are threatened with the rape of their daughter if they continue to preach the gospel and there are abductions and there are killings um of pastors in such a so that's one form then you've got another side of things in somewhere like China, uh, where back in 2018 uh, they passed the law that it was illegal for anybody under the age of 18 to go to any form of church. That's not just the hidden underground churches that are already illegal. 
uh, but the free self church the the, the state sponsored church and and you see in that almost like a, an 18 year strategy a generational strategy to uh, uh, take away from a generation you know the knowledge of god in any you know formally accessible way so that's another form of persecution um in somewhere like mm. afghanistan which is uh, uh, currently the, the most challenging place on earth to be a christian you have christians that are in hiding for their faith you know i've interviewed people here in the uk who have fled afghanistan and 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 seen people uh, murdered in front of them in that journey Gosh. who in in talking with them had this visceral emotional response of fear that what if their interview got out and their family who were in hiding and had bibles were then searched more intently and found you know it could cost them their lives mm. uh, and then in another place in southeast asia you've got uh, christians who um, because their identity stamp is that they're born in a Muslim context, they are Muslim by identity, and they're not allowed to define themselves as Christian, and they're not then allowed to marry within a Christian setting, and they can't then have children because if they do, those children will be taken off them because it's illegitimate if you're, you know, Oof. if you've got a Muslim background. So, you, so you've got all of these ranges of settings, and then in a in a third context, you know. It can be in the Middle Eastern context where you come to faith and you're rejected by your whole family or community, which is when Jesus said, you know, the, the, the gospel, you know, divides, you know, between, you know, mother and son, father and daughter. We can read that thinking, OK, that's, you know, that's about the cost of discipleship. But then you've got people, you know, who are our brothers and sisters around the world who are actually experiencing mm. total rejection from their family. I, you know, I've, I've met people who went to share their faith with their with their dad and they were beaten to within an inch of their life, chained to a fence and told they'd be killed in the morning if they didn't recant their faith, you know, Good who've then gone on to lead many, many people to faith from a Muslim background. So, so these are just some illustrations of what it's like or in Egypt, for instance, um, uh, young people who are from uh, families that are, confessing faith in jesus their children will be put at the back of the classroom so they can't hear the teacher's educational instructions so they become you know disabled academically compared to their you know contemporaries of a, of a muslim faith so they have more limited yeah so they have more limited opportunities so so that's some of the bandwidth of you know the the tactics of, of persecution around the world good gracious my goodness that puts some things into perspective doesn't yeah. it yeah now it's valuable for us in the west to know more about this because it is so this is so fr fresh so unusual to us to hear so but we can find out about it through open doors open doors is actually bringing attention to this stuff yeah. to the church and what how, how do you how do you work with churches yeah so uh, again the the brother Andrew kind of impetus Revelation three to wake up and strengthen what remains. It almost has two elements to that. Uh, one part of it is strengthen what remains, which is very much what we're kind of doing on the on the front line of where persecution is hitting the church around the world. But the other part of that is is wake up and and the the challenge um, in in Revelation is to a church that has almost got a slightly um, distorted view of reality and the you know the the, the the angel is bringing the word from Jesus to say, you know, wake up, you know, mm. um, don't be slumbering. Uh, don't be unaware of your reality. Have eyes to see what's going on. And I think if I can just speak of my own life, I know that in connecting with Christians around the world in the midst of persecution, it's brought into very, very sharp focus areas of compromise and blindness in my life, not <laughs> compromise and blindness that I've intentionally walked into. 
but compromise and blindness that has almost crept up on me because mm. of the culture that we live in. Mm. And I think because we're part of a global body of Christ, actually, we need each other. The church yes. in context persecution really need us to be praying. They need us to be using our freedom to speak out. They need our financial support and resource where they're restricted in that way. But we desperately need also the example, the testimony that, that, you know, that their faith in the same way that the writer of Hebrews speaks about in Hebrews 11. And, and, and what it does is when you see reality through the lens of the persecuted church, it sharpens your um, consciousness of one, just the value of the gospel for which people are, are losing their lives. Right. To just the incomparable worth of Jesus, mm. again, for because of the vision of Jesus, people are willing to lose their families. Mm. And it really causes you to reflect on, okay, in what ways, Father, am I compromising uh, on you in my environment? In what ways have I become <clears throat> a settler when you've called me to be a pilgrim? Mm. And uh, I love, again, in Hebrews 11, I know I keep referring back to it, but it's really struck me recently where it talks about those whose you know, faith and confidence is not in the things of this earth, but right. who are looking to a city whose foundations are, are in God. Yeah. And speaks of Moses, who considering what lay before a greater worth that he cast off, you know, yes. what was contemporary. And I think when you meet people who's, who are so surrendered um, to, you know, to the eternal call of God, it really does provoke you to think, okay, in what ways have I unintentionally settled? And then that's an opportunity to, I suppose, you know, resubmit our hearts to, to Christ. Mm. So in terms of the UK context, sorry, I diverted a bit from your question mm. there. Mm. Our sense is as we are sharing the stories and as we are bringing proximity and closeness um, to the global church, we're connecting the body of Christ, you know, and in that connection, there's a, there's a grace that is released through that relationship that causes us to glorify the Father uh, as Jesus prayed in John 17. And it reveals Jesus to, to, to the world. And so as we are sharing the stories, yeah. we're, we're yes. creating a, a participation of grace. Paul talks about it in his uh, uh, first chapter to Philippians. And in that grace, you know, lots of things take place that I think strengthen us as a global church in our faith and our faithfulness to Jesus. So we try and share the stories. We try and connect individuals and connect churches to really be a part of the global community of, of the church and specifically with the most persecuted. Mm. Oh, outstanding! That sounds that's, that's that's worth doing, huh? I love that part of that grace, that term. Yeah. Wonderful, so rarely thought of, but so basic. It's fascinating, isn't it? Hebrews eleven, you have this whole men of whom the world was not worthy, yeah. and it's what the, all they did, all they did mm. was have faith. Absolutely. You think, well, yeah. What difference is that going to make? It may change the world, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you said earlier about victimhood, and 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 it's an interesting choice of words. And I think often we can look on those who are suffering and see them as, as victims. But actually, that is not the way that um, anybody I've met would self-ascribe, you know, in terms of their suffering. That actually they would see themselves as rich in, because of their experience of, of God, you know. And they're, they're, again, from Egypt, being very provoked by a Christian I met there, they said, please don't pray for us, pray with us. Good you know, we are, we are one family in, in God, you know. And so I think that sense of it's really easy to look through Western eyes. But actually, they're, you know, there is a level of being a victims of suffering, but actually in the richness of relationship with Christ, um, I think there's incredible wealth that they enjoyed that in some ways I hunger for. Wow. <laughs> Extraordinary. I remember you saying before, 
you said the people you meet, although they are obviously victims, none of them takes their identity from their victim. Absolutely. Whereas we in the West who have ease mm. take our identity from, oh, I, I suffered, that's who I am. Mm. And you think that these people, no, these people actually are suffering and they, and they are saying, no, I have, I have, I have riches. So it's absolutely fascinating and so, and so provocative to us. So how is it you yourself came to understand the gospel? Initially, I was one of those people that um, had the privilege of my parents having a, a faith that they found in their early 20s uh, prior to being married. And, uh, and, and again, that in itself is its own story. And uh, so I remember as a, as a six-year-old, faith was almost a part of our family context. And, and therefore, you just kind of assume it and don't, don't know anything different. But I remember as a six-year-old, uh, my mum and dad talking to me about forgiveness and it was, I think, in a situation where I misbehaved, not quite sure how serious it was as a six-year-old or whatever. But, but I, I became aware in that conversation with them, and they were talking about the love of God and the forgiveness of God, of just praying a simple prayer, saying, of asking God for his forgiveness and that I would know his love. And I, and I just really distinctly remember, you know, just the, the emotion of just joy. And I think I ran around the house with a, probably a, um, you know, uh, over sense of kind of energy and excitement but there was something real that had taken Wonderful. place in my heart very definitely uh, and yet really it came to four i think when i was about 12 and i was at secondary school and uh, i was really desperate to to fit in in the context of secondary school being a, a child my dad was involved in church ministry and we didn't have a, a huge amount of money and went to a school that there was a bit more affluence and i really really wanted to fit in in the context of of of, of being at the school and uh, and I begin to pinch money from my parents, uh, from my mum's purse, or you know other places, in order to be able to buy school lunches, to um, to sit with my friends, um, and even to buy clothes from a shop that I would then take the labels off and put them in a black bin bag in the loft, which was where we'd get hand me downs, and knowing then the hand me downs would kind of come down. And uh, wow. and uh, and yet there were things that and I had knew that had some of the labels on that some of my friends had at, at school. So just incredibly deceitful and <laughs> it's slightly worryingly uh, innovative in, in that regard. <laughs> and uh, and so I absolutely wasn't in that way living out, you know, the, the rigors of faithfulness, though I think in my heart there was a, a conviction of faith. I just hadn't connected it with behavior, really. It was, uh, it, and so was, there's a movement, I suppose, from kind of childlike faith, which was a knowledge of sins being forgiven and the love of God to a sense of adolescent faith, which is recognizing that actually there's a, there's a cost, there's, there's a transaction needs to take place. And I ended up being, um, at a, an event one evening and the guy, um, who was speaking, he just said, there's somebody here. And as you've been listening today, um, it's the story of the prodigal son that he was talking about. So you, you know that you're in a place that you're not in the father's house, that you found yourself in a place that actually is, is hopeless and worthless. But the father wants you to know that he forgives you and he welcomes you back. And it was a bit like that national lottery, big finger, you mm. know, felt just a sense of my heart, you know, beating. And, uh, mm. and I knew wow. that that was God calling me to him. But that at that point, I knew that this was this was about a surrender of life. This was a transaction that would cost everything. And uh, and so I went forward. And, and at that point, I, I knew that there was there was no cost, really, because I was giving up the sin that I was so aware of in that moment to receive, you know, forgiveness and, and grace and and the love of God again. And, and really, from that moment onwards, I, I think conversion is a daily process. I think every day our heart is reconverted as we surrender and we say no to self and we say yes to Christ. And so I think we're perpetually being converted. But I, but I think in terms of a 
uh, a deliberate decision to say, Jesus, I'm yours, I'm, I'm all in. It was really, you know, when I was about 12 and, and then many, many years since then, I've just been kind of each year recycling through that process of mm-hmm. as the Lord highlights things that are obstructing the opportunity of grace, I've been willing to say no to that and yes to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's in, uh, I think it might have been David Pryor's uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, we never move on from the cross, yeah. only to a more profound understanding of it. Absolutely. It might be, yeah. it might be start, but yes, we continually. And, uh, and I think in our humanity, I think the default setting for humanity is, self, is self-sufficiency. Right. And, right. and we even post the cross can, you know, we have to wrestle with self-sufficiency and we have to be intentional mm-hmm. to say, Christ, you know, I put all of my hope in you. And again, that is something where persecuted Christians because they have to depend on God because he's all that they've got, you know, they know what it is to be completely sufficient in Christ um, and surrendered to him. And again, for me, I I have the privilege of that provocation, you know, regularly. It's mm-hmm. sometimes very challenging, um, mm. but also very beautiful. Yeah. Well, this is this is the opportunity of, uh, of the of the local pastor, isn't it? To keep preaching, keep placarding Christ, keep placarding Jesus. Absolutely. As some, uh, occasionally, Michael Reeves, he quite regularly puts up on a Sunday on Twitter, he says, Mr. Preacher, we want to see Jesus. Mm. And frankly, if you're talking about anything else, as Spurgeon said, can you go and go home and start again? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's what yeah. we need to hear. Absolutely. So yeah, so you came to you, you came to accept the Lord as a child, but you continually are finding yourself coming back to Christ, coming back to the cross in that sense, and uh, and you are um, uh, someone who's working for an organisation which, as you say, was begun by uh, sort of a legend of of modern church history. I remember as a child seeing the books of Brother Lawrence on the bookshelf, and you think, wow, he's like a, mm. he's a he's a real <laughs> he's a hero, a living hero, and no one really knew his surname yeah. until now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, are there people who particularly inspired you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Brother Lawrence, perhaps in the presence of God, he was inspiring. You know, mm-hmm. Brother Andrew. Did um, I say Brother Lawrence? You did say Brother Lawrence, which oh. is a very, very good book. <laughs> but uh, yeah. and, and I'm sure Brother Andrew very much has uh, grown up practicing the presence of God. Yeah. Um, so I think, no, so I, I think probably a person that has really, really profoundly impacted me is, is Hudson Taylor, mm. um, who was one of the kind of early missionaries to, to China. And particularly, he sought um, to become a part of the community to kind of cast off almost uh, standing out as a Western missionary, but mm. really taking on the, the whole culture and context. Um, but even more than that kind of missiological behavior, um, when he was back in the UK as a, as a 19-year-old, uh, he determined to learn the, the God's faithfulness um, that would then stand him in good stead for when he was in China. And he mm. had this maxim, which was to learn to move man through God by prayer alone. And, uh, and his determination of that was, when I'm in China, um, I will have nothing else to rely on but God. And I need to know that God is, is all that I need and I can rely on him. So as a 19-year-old, he, he learnt to practice how to learn to move man through God by prayer alone, that whenever he would face scenarios, and, and often it would be economic scenarios and economic challenges, rather than try and resolve them through his human means or human agency, he determined that he was going to pray and see how God would work purely in response to prayer and total dependency on him. And so many stories uh, are in his you know, author, autobiography, The Growth of a Soul, or in a book by... Um, uh, his uh, uncle um, about him 
share testimonies of this principle of learning to move man through God by prayer alone and how God moved circumstances sovereignly. Mm. And so he, he, he went to China with these kind of faith deposits and anchors in his spirit that he knew that God was totally dependable. And so he knew, well, if God could provide for him in, in England as a 19 year old, by that principle, he could absolutely provide in China. And, and he saw that wow. many, many, many times over. And that principle was also shared by a guy called George Muller, um, who, you know, is, is pretty well known for running um, orphanages in, in Bristol. But I think what George Muller most wanted to be known for or wanted the ministry to be known for was not the provision for children, children though that was beautiful and precious, but God's faithfulness in response to prayer. Mm. And I, I think that's something that I've, tried to absorb in in part of my kind of role um both currently and, and previously in more kind of localized mission and uh, and i think we so desperately need that in our contemporary setting we're so good at in our humanity coming up with solutions um that we think can fix problems but fundamentally i think the problem is of a spiritual order and the only answers are really found um in the place of total dependency on christ and and actually, it, it's it's spiritual provision that is is the answer to the problems in the world, and, and mm. that requirement, therefore, to pray becomes paramount. Mm. And yet, I think as I look at my own life and look around, one of the things I think we most struggle in in the church in the West is prayer. Mm, yes, uh, because prayer is is not primarily an activity; it's primarily an identity, huh. and you can only really function in the activity of prayer from an identity of prayer. And I think, in some way, we need to kind of recover the identity of of prayer, which is about intimacy, relationship, and God's total dependability. Mm, yes, the, the 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 whole subject of of, of um, union with Christ yes. yeah, yeah, is yeah. one which is profoundly experimental as yeah. the uh, Puritans would call it experiential we yeah. would probably call it and it is delightful and wonderful and some of the most glorious writing that's been written by the great writers has been on that yeah. and fascinating those those who have taken hold of it and and said let's let's see what god can do yeah i had the privilege of taking a group of chinese pastors on a tour yeah. through london's church history and the british wow. museum i'm told that between them they oversee a million Chinese yeah. Christians. Amazing. They said, you are impressed with our numbers. We are impressed with your history. Mm. So from, from yeah. China, they're talking about Wilberforce and Spurgeon yeah. and Whitfield. Yeah. But I met with uh, Dennis Balcom. Do you know the name? No, I don't know. And Dennis Balcom wrote some great books back in the, or a great book in the 90s, I guess, Lilies Amongst the Thorns, I think, about his work in China. Okay. But he, uh, he once, I, I asked him, do, do, do you think there's any connection between the massive mm. revival in China and Hudson Taylor he says this is all from Hudson Taylor mm. Mm. and you think no, that, I love that there's a simplicity and the thrilling yeah. element Sam in what you're saying here is this anyone listening to this knows the potential of mm. this because it's all about Jesus absolutely very similarly you know the whole Hebrews 11 thing mm. is the, the, the reason it's written down is not mm. to say here are some guys who you will not attain to the reason these people who of whom the world was not worthy yeah. was they just found Jesus, they found that the, the Lord is faithful and put Absolutely. their faith in him. Absolutely. And that changes some things. That yeah. changes some things for how we handle being at home with our children yeah. and hands, handles how we make the decision for our next church plant, you know, and everything yeah. in between. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, going back to um, Hudson Taylor and, and again, others like Isabel Kuhn and James Fraser and uh, others that were part of the China Mission and, and spreading out. 
what what was distinctive, particularly in what um, Hudson Taylor brought, was that it wasn't primarily about missiological activity and new ways of doing things. And what was deposited was not kind of forms of mission, right? But it was much more you know total dependency on, on Christ. Right, you know, so, so, so the legacy that was kind of established in china wasn't a legacy of activity and mm. um, strategy it was a legacy of total dependency on christ that he <laughs> is faithful to do all things so when you suddenly got a closure of the church in china all western missionaries expelled with potentially of a church of a million in china you'd expect that you know all of the functional strategic elements that are going to be restricted by that would would lead to a diminished church but when the you know the communist curtain opens in china suddenly you find you've got a church of 40 50 million that now conservatively expectations are that the size of the christian underground church in china is actually bigger than the the membership of the communist party in china so over 100 million christians now, now that is to do i think with a with a dna of gospel centered christ centered dependency you know not a commitment to what we can do for christ but a recognition of what he can do in us through a surrendered life and wow. i think that's again something that for me i'm desperate to recover and live in Lord Jesus, how do I live in a surrendered way? You know, what does that look like? And again, you know, I appreciate I may, uh, as somebody working for a, a persecuted church charity, you know, maybe accused of card carrying, but in my own spiritual formation, I think meeting Christians around the world who embody a surrendered life, I find so compelling and so, so beautiful, so um, inspiring, actually, that yeah. I'm just like, well, actually, the richness of what you know in Jesus, you know, far outweighs anything that the world has to offer you know mm. I, I want more of that yeah you know i don't want to welcome or call for persecution i mean who would mm. but i'm like jesus if if you are what is at stake in and what can be gained then nothing else matters wow oh my word that's helpful that's and, and rare outstanding okay so um and what's new with you presently sam I, I, well, I think something that's really been um, with me this year, and, and again, I think we're all asking lots of questions about how do we make sense of the world that, that we're in currently, you know, post-COVID and just the state of the church, you know, some of the loss of kind of numbers and, and all of that type of thing. And, and we're all trying to work out, Lord, you know, what's going on and with all that's gone on in, in Ukraine and with Iran at the moment and the dependency on energy and the fluctuation in prices. There's, there's so much... Um, I think vulnerability and I think sometimes in the church there's also a lot of fear in, in the midst of this and the, the question is if, if perfect love casts out all fear how acquainted are we with the perfect love of God and, and what is the opportunity of this moment in order to re-encounter the perfect love that casts out all fear because if we live in intimate communion with perfect love and the love of Jesus in our hearts, then we become a testimony to all of those around us who are living with fear and vulnerability. But if we are living in fear and vulnerability as the people of God, then then who is the light to those who are, are yeah. in fear? Yeah. So I think so. I think there's something in this season about just how are we recognizing the opportunity of grace in this moment, rather than just focusing on the opposition that stands in front of us. And I've been really struck by uh, Mark 13 this year. And again, it's lots of stuff in there that Jesus is speaking about you know, the end of all times. And one sense, you know, we we don't know when that is. But there's four there's four times he says in Mark 13. He says, you know. Um, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Four times he says, stay awake. Interesting, the next chapter when, um, you know, he's uh, 
just suffering um, in isolation and, 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 and fear of death in one sense, facing that whole challenge. The disciples haven't stayed awake, yeah. which I think in retrospect, if they knew the moment they're in, they'd have completely behaved differently. But I think what Jesus is saying is actually the, the challenge for his church, for his family, for his body, for us is to stay awake. It's to be alert. It's to be awake. And I think then if you connect that in Mark 13 and then you flow through the letters and, you know, Peter saying, do not be unaware of the enemy's schemes and, and all of that stuff. And then you land at Revelation 3 to wake up and strengthen what remains. I think this sense of alertness, attentiveness, you know, being uh, awake to what God is, is doing, I think is really key. So I think mm. in in this moment, you know, there's no moment where God is not victor and is not um, above and beyond it. And our current circumstances are no obstacle to the purposes of God. Mm. But sometimes I think God allows our circumstances to refine us and to awaken us, um, to replace our total dependency on him. And mm-hmm. because the fruit of total dependency is what we see, you know, in China, in and now as mm. a result of Hudson Taylor's mm. was what mm. we see in the context of persecuted church and, for me, I'm just desperate for our context of the UK that the world needs to know and to see and to hear of just the grace and the sufficiency of Christ for whatever they're going through. You know, the world needs to be set free from fear. And, and Jesus offers the antidote to all of those things and offers us life in all of its fullness. So, yes. so for me, you know, it's this sense very much what, how are we um, being woken up to the moment that we're in and mm. woken up to the grace in God that is available in this moment and then how are we I suppose helping other people to to wake up to the, the grace that's in Christ yes yes it's an interesting moment I, I run the uh, the George Whitfield Twitter account it's very interesting to see which quotes mm. get the biggest the, the more people resonate yeah, with yeah. them and uh, the ones we put up lately were awake, awake. Is it? Mm. Is it? Do you think it's appropriate for you to be? Um, and he, and and very interesting. Whitfield. He he will explain the gospel, but then in a way which we don't really, mm. we don't very often hear now. He will then say, "Well, therefore, so so, what about you?" And he mm. challenges people in a way which you don't often hear so much now. Mm. But uh, it's interesting to watch what gets traction mm. and when it comes to come on let's go wake yeah. up it's almost i fear that people are almost allergic to it because uh what, what are you trying to uh mm. are you trying to tell me what to do or manip- mm. is that in line with the gospel mm. well actually if the gospel is a free thing which invites us to abide mm. those who abided that you'll notice that they ran with mm. him and yeah. <laughs> draw yeah, me yeah. off to me let's run together yeah. uh, we don't uh, let us let us not settle for I've got assurance I'm saved. Mm. Let's not just settle for it. Mm. Let's settle. There's much more available. Yeah. You're in. Well done. Yes, but I'm inviting you. Let's go. Let's yeah, run. Yeah. yeah. And that's uh, that's surely the, the, the place where you might feel more assurance is actually holding onto his hand while he's saying, come out of the boat, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, it goes back to the point we discussed a bit earlier around sufficiency. I, I think if at the very start of Jesus' ministry, um, in his Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of laying out the constitution of life in the kingdom. And uh, and he begins his very first words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they inherit the kingdom of God. So there's something in the nature of poverty, um, of spirit, which is about dependency and finding sufficiency in God that inherit the kingdom. Then as he goes through the other, you know, blessed are groups, the last group 
in that list are blessed are the persecuted for they inherit the kingdom so the two groups in that constitution of the kingdom that inherit the kingdom are the poor in spirit and the persecuted and what's the uniting element of those two it's that they are desperate they're desperate and they recognize their total need of god and so I think if we in the UK are wanting to inherit the kingdom, we're wanting to inherit wow. the rule and reign of God and the presence of Jesus, then I think part of that is about us letting go of self-sufficiency and it, walking in total dependency along with the poor in spirit and the persecuted, because it seems to be that's where the kingdom is inherited. And, and it's not when I'm most sufficient that I'm most alive or awake. It's when I'm most aware of my insufficiency and I cry out to Christ that I find myself most alive and most alert and awake to the to the world. And so hmm. I think this is about how we recognize the things that stand to contend against the kingdom of God uh, and to lure, lure us into blindness and yeah. deceit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are the things that provoke us to wake up, uh, to recognize the state of things yeah. and to then begin to live differently prioritizing uh, things of a first order nature in terms of intimacy with God, prayer, the Bible. And actually, if you look at the context of persecuted church, you can see all of the battle lines um, that are as true for us in the West um, as they have been for the church for our history. You know, it's the Bible that is banned yeah. in places where the church is most persecuted. Right. Why is that? Yeah. Because it, it provokes an awakening to right. the reality of God. Yeah. And so you see, you see spiritual, you know, fault lines here mm. as well as front lines that we need to kind of really mm. wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I repose also in the midst of all this, we're living in a moment in which delightfully great voices like Tim Keller and mm. John Piper and Mike Reeves and people are not just, the, 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 they keep preaching such a Christ-centered yeah. gospel yeah. where you're not just, uh, you don't want to go to hell, do you? You know, yeah. <laughs> they're actually preaching, you know, he, look how beautiful Christ is. Mm. And look, uh, do you not want to know him? The fascinating thing about that is I rarely now hear anyone ever preaching a gospel which says, look, you want to avoid sin, such mm. as smoking and drinking. Mm. Instead, you find they're talking in terms of all those things which our hearts go after. Yeah. And our hearts go after anything which isn't him. And they can be quite respectable things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, and instead, you find, no, you, you could actually know someone who's worth knowing. Yeah. And that's that's not some strange mystical thing. That's the middle of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. That's Absolutely. the jolly gospel. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. So um, we, we can't keep going forever, but uh, as fascinating as this is. But I'd like to ask, last of all, what would your advice be to people who are listening to this? As broad as you'd like. <laughs> I think my advice is, I mean, sometimes I think we need different running partners, don't we, that um, inspire us in different ways. And I know throughout my life there's various people that at different times have come alongside and I've encountered in and through their lives and through their accompaniment, you know, fresh revelations of who Jesus is that have helped me to see the world differently and to see Christ differently. And I think in this current moment I'd be kind of remiss if I didn't encourage people to make a running partner of, you know, those who are facing persecution because... Those who face persecution need us alongside them, you know, praying, advocating, you know, supporting. But I think also we need just the agitation and the provocation of those who are facing persecution. But consider Jesus worth it. And mm. um, I wow. think that would be my advice because it it confronts us with realities that um, wake us up to what is really at stake of an eternal nature. A bit like the writer of Hebrews uses Hebrews 11. Um, alongside you know the supremacy of Christ that has been presented in the first ten and a half chapters, but he uses Hebrews eleven to say also you know let the cloud of witnesses 
those who've gone to glory and those who are present inspire you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I think actually looking, you know, to our left and right and considering those around the world who are following Jesus despite the cost, it uh, it provokes us really to um, re-engage with just the heart of the gospel. Mm. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's come across just from hearing you today. So, um, it would be a great thing, I would say, just to apply your, um, your advice there and to, to look up, learn more about open doors, because potentially that could be of great help to people in churches around us who don't know. And one of the great gifts we have with the interconnected age, with the internet and so on, is we can actually, we can be kept up to date much more quickly than you might just have, just have read a book, like when we were, small and so on yeah and, and again open doors is 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 not you know anything special we're a vehicle uh, it's it's the it's the church it's the body of christ it's and it's you know we're there to serve the connection with the most persecuted and serve the persecuted we are purely a vehicle for that but yeah so if we can help resource serve stand alongside people in raising that awareness raising prayer then that would be a real privilege to be able to do that oh brilliant well this has been fa- thank you so much sam no, thank you For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.